can be very impressed by large crowds, multitudes of people following particular ministries. However, Jesus was not impressed by the multitudes that continued to follow Jesus. He understood that for the larger part of the multitudes, most people really didn't get what Jesus was about, what it meant for him to be the Messiah. They were following him for the wrong reasons. On another instance, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of loaves and were filled. They weren't seeking him because of the messianic manifestations, the miracles that he was performing in order to demonstrate who he really was. They were simply seeking him for the healing, for the food, for the outward manifestations of peace and joy that he was bringing but they were losing the bigger picture of who Jesus was. But the crowds provide a very important element to the ministry of Jesus, and they are very important to our understanding of the book of Matthew. Our text opens with verse 1. And when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus had just delivered the Sermon on the Mount. And it's been months, actually, since uh, we began the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just go back and review the immediate verses prior to the Sermon on the Mount. It starts with Matthew chapter 4, verse 24. And the news about him went out into all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. There is a respite between chapter 4 and chapter 8. That respite is the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 4, Jesus is just surrounded by incredible groups of people that have come because of the healings, because of the miraculous works that he was doing, because of the casting out of demons. And he was seeking to get away from the crowds. And so he went up on the top of a mountain in order to address his real followers, the the people that, that were seeking Uh, to be committed to him for the right reasons. Now the Sermon on the Mount is over. Jesus comes back down, and when he comes back down, there are the crowds again. There are the crowds again. Now, as I say, these crowds become very important. In just a little bit, Jesus will get into a boat to escape the crowds once again. Look at Matthew 8, 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart on the other side. So Jesus gets into a boat where it's going to be difficult for them to follow him because he's going to be on a boat, they're going to be on land. And so he's trying to get away from the crowd, and he goes to the other side. Well, they're going to walk around the shore and 
You're going to end up finding Jesus anyway. But it might seem odd to us that Jesus would be seeking to get away from the crowds. We need to understand that they were astonished at what Jesus said and how he taught, Matthew 7, 28. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his teaching. They were astonished at what he said. Now we move to a section in which they should be astonished at what he did. These miracles that he performed. But what we're to understand is the importance of these miracles, the significance of the miracles. What these miracles say about Jesus. That is what the crowd failed to get. They just saw the miracle and be neat to be a part of the miracle and how wonderful if that miracle would be performed upon them and they could be free of their diseases and their, and their demons and, and all those things, but they lost sight of what it, what it taught. I think many times even when we read these passages, we focus on the miracle and focus on the individuals, but lose sight of why we're given these Miracles. Why, why Jesus is doing what he is doing. So this morning, I'm going to look at three miracles in this text. And what we are to learn about Jesus in these three miracles. I was going to go to verse 27. It just got to be too long, too much to try to do all of that. So I'm going to let myself... I'm going to stop at verse 18. And how these three miracles served to bear witness as to who Jesus really was. First, the leper who was cleansed. This miracle was to be a testimony to the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus came to establish the law, not to abolish the law. It was to be a testimony to the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus came to establish the law, not abolish the law. In this account, the leper recognizes Jesus' authority to heal Jesus, if that is his will. Notice verse 2. And behold, a leper came to him, that is Jesus, and bowed down to him and saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. This leper understood that the only thing that stood in the way of Jesus being able to heal him was his willingness to do so. If Jesus was willing to heal the leper, the leper believed wholeheartedly that Jesus could. Then Jesus immediately responds positively and heals him. Notice verse 4. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell, uh, excuse me, verse 3. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Then Jesus gives this command to the leper. It's a twofold command. The first seems a bit odd. Verse 4. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one. Don't tell 
a single soul what I just did. The second is, go show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded for a testimony to them. So why does Jesus do that? Let's start with the second command first. Show yourself to the priest as a testimony to them. The first thing I would point out to you is that the testimony is to them plural. The testimony is not to the priest. Go show yourself to the priest as a testimony not to him, but to them. Who are the them? I submit to you, they are the scribes and the Pharisees. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, there was this long dissertation on righteousness, and it began because the scribes and the Pharisees accused Jesus of seeking to abolish the law. To which Jesus said, I have not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill. And unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, you will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. They said he came to abolish the law. But he had not come to abolish the law. And so Jesus said, now that I have cleansed you, you go yourself and show yourself to the priest as testimony to the scribes and Pharisees that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For the Old Testament law is this, Leviticus 14.2. This shall be the law of the leprous person for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall look. Then, if the case of the leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet yarn and hyssop. And the priest shall command them to kill one of the birds in an earthenware vessel over fresh water. And it goes on. Jesus said, go, show yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifice, fulfill the Old Testament law. Do what it says. For I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And it will be a testimony. It will be a testimony in two ways. First, it will be a testimony as to who Jesus is. Because it's going to force the priest to acknowledge this miracle. It's going to force the priest to say, he's healed. It's going to be an authoritative interpretation of the ministry of Jesus. It's a validation. Here is a man who can heal. Secondly, it's a validation of what Jesus said all along, that I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. Do what the law says. But I am actually going to be the one who cleanses you. I'm going to be the instrument that God is going to use to bring about a fulfillment of his purposes. 
All of that was the reason for this leper to be healed. How does that turn out? What does the leper do? The, uh, this account in Matthew chapter 8 is very interesting. Because these three miracles that we're going to look at are all abbreviated. If you look at the synoptic gospels, if you look at the other accounts, they are, they are lengthier. They, they give us more details. They also come in a, in a, a different order. It appears in Matthew that, that Matthew's driving home a point here that he doesn't want us to lose sight of. And that's really been the basis of what my theme is this morning, of what we're learning about Jesus from, from these uh, miracles, because it seems to be the reason that Matthew's included them the way he has. So listen to the account in Mark. Uh, I'll just pick up with the healing itself. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for you cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Listen. But he went out and he began to talk freely about it and to spread all the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. But Jesus said, don't tell a soul. Go show yourself to the priest. May it be a testimony to them. He goes out and blabs it to everybody. Tells everybody what Jesus did and the crowds pour in. It is an explanation of verse 1. Great crowds around Jesus. Why? Because he healed this leper. We're back on the throes of the crowds again. And the sad thing is, the crowds didn't understand that Jesus had not come to fulfill the law. They didn't understand who he was. They heard that he could heal. Jesus' fame was spreading, but not in the way that he wanted. I ask a simple question this morning. Why didn't the man do what Jesus wanted him to do? Why did he not obey Jesus' command? He was clear. All the synoptic Gospels record the command, don't go and tell anyone. Two of them record the failure. Why didn't he listen to Jesus? Perhaps because he was so excited about being healed that he just couldn't control himself, couldn't contain himself. He was delighted. Man, look at me, I'm healed. Look what Jesus did. Give him the benefit of the doubt. What lessons can we learn? First, the greatest way to show our love and appreciation to Jesus for what he has done for us in our lives 
is not to sing about our love for him or proclaim our love for him or even tell others about what he has done. But the greatest way in which we can show love for God is by obeying his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not a yardstick that many people use for measuring love for God. Just like the crowds had a different standard, today there's a whole different standard about what it means to love God. God's love and our love for him is sung about in the same way that that uh, people sing about a love for a wife or a lover. I listened to a song last night, and I wasn't sure. I was, I was listening to a concert, and it was a group, and they were performing both religious and secular songs. And they sang a song about love. And as I listened to it, I didn't know if it fell within the secular part of the concert or it fell into the religious part of the concert because it could be construed of love for God, but it could have been love for a mate. It was so nebulous. People have this sentimental, emotional aspect of what it means to love God. But if this leper would have really understood the authority of Jesus, who he was, and what he had done, and if he was really appreciative of what Jesus had done, and he was willing to humble himself and accept that there must be a reason that God told him to tell no one and show himself to the priest if he really would have loved Jesus, he would have done what he said. But he didn't. Lesson number two. Significant lesson. Jesus had much more in mind in healing the leper than simply taking away the leprosy of this one man. Jesus wanted to take away the leprosy of this one man. It was to his benefit. It was to his betterment. It was to the enrichment of his life and the joy it was transforming. It was wonderful. But Jesus had a bigger agenda. It was not only to heal the man, it was all that, but more. It was to demonstrate who he was in relationship to the law, in relationship to fulfillment, in relationship to power, in relationship to being the Messiah. And that was lost. We need to realize God's grace in our life is for more than just 
our own enrichment, our own embitterment. God's goodness. What, what God, when God answers prayer, it's more than just about us. And our salvation is more than just about us. For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It's a good of, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus unto good works. We leave off that next verse. Most people don't memorize that next verse. They're happy. They're saved. It's about me. No, you're saved for a reason. You're saved for a purpose. You're saved. You're called to good works. You're called now to give glory to God and to accomplish his will, establish his kingdom. Be his people. The leper failed. And as a result, the crowds come in. The second healing is of the centurion's servant. This was to be a testimony to the nation of Israel. The healings had a kingdom significance. Matthew 8, 5. And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him entreating him. A centurion was a Roman commander commanding about a hundred men. And the centurion had a request not for himself, but for his servant. Verse 6, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering from great pain. And he, that is Jesus, said to him, that is the centurion, I will come and heal him. The centurion humbled himself before the Lord. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Again, this is a very abbreviated account with regards to the other two accounts. We take it all in picture. The centurion actually didn't go himself. He actually asked Jewish leaders to intercede for him and got them to go and and so on. I'm, I'm I'm going to limit myself this time to this account because it's trying to point out some important things for us. First, this centurion, his response when Jesus said, I will come and heal him. He said, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. This centurion soldier would have been regarded by the Jewish people of the day as scum. He would have been despised. He had been the enemy. He was a Roman official oppressing the nation of Israel. The very people that they were hoping Jesus was going to deliver them from. This earthly Messiah that would take away the oppression of Rome and restore unto Israel the kingdom. Jesus is willing to aid and abet the enemy. He's willing to help this centurion. And he's willing to do the unthinkable. Enter his home, which would have been viewed as off guards. 
would have been fodder for those that say he is not following the law of God. He's on his way to this man's home. And this man sends word to Jesus. I'm not worthy for you to come into my home. I don't deserve your presence. This man was not turned off by the Jews who viewed him as scum, but rather was willing to take on the humility of saying, in God's sight, I'm scum. I'm not worthy of you coming to my house. I'm not worthy of you defiling yourself over me. Don't come. You don't need to come. Just say the word. Just say, you're healed. And my servant will be healed. This is the right understanding of his position. He didn't think that he was worthy of Jesus coming to his house because he was a commander and by the Romans would have been respected as a person of leadership. And most Romans would have felt it an honor to go to his house and to be able to serve this military leader. Most of them would have been flattered. He understood who he was. And he didn't think he was doing Jesus any favor in asking him to his house. You almost hear some people's testimonies in which they think that they're doing Jesus a favor, say a favor by giving them their lives. That, look what I'm willing to sacrifice for you, Jesus. He didn't view himself as doing Jesus a, a, a favor. He viewed Jesus as doing him a favor and one that he was not deserving of. He also learned a very important lesson from his position. Notice verse 9. For I too am a man of authority, with soldiers under me, And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Verse 10. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who are following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Nobody gets it like this guy got it. This fellow understands who I am. He understands my authority. He understands that I don't have to go, I don't have to touch him, I don't have to lay a hand on him. All I have to say is be healed, he's healed. He turns to the crowd and says, he's got it. He understands. And no one else in Israel does. Unless you think that is an exaggeration. Lest you think that that is hyperbole. Think with me, John chapter 11, Jesus and the raising of Lazarus. 
Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that their brother Lazarus is ill. He's dying. He gets word, and the scripture tells us he waits three days before he travels. Why is he waiting? He's waiting for Lazarus to die. And Mary and Martha now have to deal with the death of their brother. And uh, Jesus had sent word to them saying, this sickness will not end in death, but the glory of God. So they are looking forward to Jesus coming and healing Lazarus. Lazarus dies because Jesus is purposefully waiting for Lazarus to die. Mary and Martha, dealing with their grief, Martha goes out to visit Jesus. She hears that Jesus is coming. She runs out and says to Jesus, If you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But I know, even now, whatsoever thou askest of God, God will give it thee. Let me unpack that for you. Jesus, if you would not have been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know what kept you. I don't know what the unintended circumstances were. What a shame that you weren't here. But I know even now, even though you didn't keep your word, even though you let us down, even though you're incapable of doing this, I know even now, whatever you ask of God, God will give it to you. He calls for Mary. Mary runs out and sees him. Says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So you can see the two of them uh, commiserating, trying to console each other for three days after Lazarus has died, looking at each other and saying, oh, if only Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Oh, where was Jesus? If Jesus would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Distance didn't matter. Lazarus died because it was the will of Jesus that he died. Because he wanted to show the power of God. He was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. That was his purpose. That was his will. That's what he was about to achieve. But Mary and Martha limited the power of God. Jesus said, there isn't a person in Israel that had this kind of faith. Everybody wanted me to come. Everybody wanted me to touch them. Everybody wanted to do this. This centurion, he gets it. But notice what else he says. Verse 11. And I say to you, that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. He takes this, and then he talks about the kingdom. The lesson isn't just about healing from a distance. The lesson is failing to understand who Jesus is. He says, people are going to come from the east and west. The Gentiles are going to come to me. But you Jewish people aren't going to come to me to be in the kingdom. You're standing here 
You're coming to me to be healed, but you're not coming to be saved. You're coming to have your life bettered, but you aren't coming to have your sin dealt with. You have not humbled yourself like this man and said, I am unworthy for you to come into my house. They think that Jesus is unworthy of them. They find fault with him. They bring accusation against him. And they think that they are deserving. Have you ever said to yourself, Lord, why has this happened to me? I deserve better. I've been faithful to you. I've been good to you. I've served you. Why would you allow this to happen to me? As opposed to saying I'm unworthy. Or as Job, shall we not receive evil at the hand of God as well as good? This man understood who Jesus was. It was a demonstration of the kingdom. Luke chapter 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are trodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. It's a quotation of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1. Quickly, moving on. Third, a day of healing, a testimony to Jesus' saving work. Matthew eight fourteen to 17. And when Jesus had come to Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and waited on him. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a sword, and healed all who were ill, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, quote, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. For sake of time this morning, I won't read the longer account in uh, the book of Mark. But it's been a long day. Jesus has been in the synagogue. He's been teaching. He's been healing. He's been doing all kinds of incredible things all day long. Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The day is finally over. He enters Peter's house. His mother-in-law is sick with a fever. Jesus already had a long day. Already healed many. Sees her sick with a fever. So he heals her. She immediately gets up and begins to serve them. Evidently probably serving them a meal. Serving them dinner. And then our text tells us this. Verse 16. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, healed all who were ill, and order that was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Long day. Jesus ministers to this crowd. He's, he's God, but he's also a human being. Long day, tired. Wherever he goes, there's somebody to be healed, something to do. 
and he heals them. But Isaiah tells us why. Verse 17, in order that, here's the motivation, in order that what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It was a part of the ministry of Jesus. It was a significant aspect of what God had sent him to do. But our text points to, says this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4. That great passage that speaks about Jesus being our Savior uh, and how our iniquities were laid upon him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. It takes that text that talks about Jesus' death on the cross, how he bore our sins, how he bore our infirmities, how he bore our weaknesses, to take away the curse of the law. To heal us in the fullest sense of that word. Putting it in a more popular vernacular. They kept bringing people to Jesus that had symptoms of a problem. The real problem was sin. And the real problem was a need to be delivered from sin. The illnesses, the demons, all that were symptoms. It wasn't the root cause. Take away the demon, take away the paralysis, take away the leprosy. Still didn't deal with the root. Still didn't save the individual. Jesus came to deal with the root. Jesus came to bring complete and full healing and restoration. He came to bring the kingdom in. And when he does, when that kingdom comes, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, there will be no more death, there will be no more disease, there will be no more of any of these things. Because he will have done away with the root problem, sin and evil. It will be banished in the new heaven and the new earth. And there will be no more sickness. There will be no more disease. All of this was simply a testimony of the ministry of Jesus taking away sin and bringing the kingdom. They didn't want the kingdom. 
They were satisfied when the symptoms were removed. Jesus teaches us not to long for the removal of the symptom, but to long for the kingdom. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Let me ask you, do you pray as fervently about your spiritual needs as you do your physical needs? When you hear that you are physically sick, all of a sudden, do you pray much more fervently than you do about your spiritual sickness? About transgressions in our lives, about a lack of growth, a lack of maturity, a lack of development? Are we concerned about the testimony that we have before God and expressing our love for him, that we are satisfied by telling him that we love him even when we disobey his commands? Or does it strike us to the core that we've been unfaithful to him when we have disobeyed him? Do we understand in a bigger picture how that undermines who he is and our representation of him to the community at large? Jesus said this to his disciples when he sent them out. Listen carefully. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice because you can cast out demons. Don't rejoice because you can do miracles. Don't rejoice because no one can harm you. But rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Take heart, take joy, be delighted that you're a part of the kingdom. It is so easy to read these passages and you focus on the miracles and you say, oh boy, I like that. Oh boy, what neat thing that would be. And you lose sight of the greater truth of what these miracles were demonstrated to to prove. I believe that God can do miracles today. I believe that God heals. I believe that, that God answers prayer. I credit God with the fact that I'm walking today. There are a lot of people thought that my foot should have been amputated. I don't think it was miraculous in the that kind of sense of the word, but I really believe it's the grace of God. I believe that it's what he has done. But I also think it was, it was more than just the fact that he wanted to heal me as an individual. I prayed that God would restore my health. I've been trying to do my part, trying to lose weight and all those things, but I asked God, for his grace in my life in that way. But what prompted me the most was sitting in that wheelchair 
week after week, I was very aware of the limitations that I had in serving him. What I could not do I grieved each week, not because I missed walking around, but because there were so many things I felt I should have been doing but couldn't. I wanted to get up and walk so I could get back to doing the Lord's work. I say that not for self-aggrandizement. I say that as a matter of perspective. Why does God manifest grace in our lives? To achieve his purpose. To bring glory to himself. To establish his kingdom. so we might bear witness to the one who can deal with the biggest issue that any of us have. And that's our sin. And he can deliver us from our selfishness, from our pride, from our apathy, lethargy, smallness, Ability to think big and dream big for the kingdom. He can deal with the root of what causes problems in our marriages, between parents and children, husbands and wives, workplaces, bring peace to our nation, our world. It's all about sin, it's all about evil. And he can take it away. And he's saying to a crowd that is only concerned with our physical well-being that there's a greater message here, people. I've come to deliver you from this sin-filled world. That's a small part of it. I've come to deliver you from all of it. The greatest healing you'll ever experience is if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior because you will be a part of his kingdom. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more disease, no more nothing, no more evil. It's okay to seek God for these other things. But rejoice. Not in those things, but in the fact that your name is written down in heaven. Stand amazed at who Jesus is and what he can do. Not just in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. He can grant deliverance. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ Help us to see him in his kingdom's power. Help us to see our unworthiness, your grace in our lives, to save us, to enter into our presence, our world, 
Lord, may we never view ourselves as deserving. May we not box you in. May we not limit what you are able to do. May we not say, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. May we not limit the period of time in which we are in because you are not physically present. May we not think that there are things that you can't do today because you don't walk this earth. Lord, help us to see. Help us grow our understanding that you can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Oh, Lord, help us. Help us to see why it is that you restore us, why it is that you heal us, why you heal marriages, why you heal relationships, to bring glory to your name, to bear witness to your power, so that people would seek you for the right reasons, so that they would come to faith. Oh, Lord, help us to realize that any command, no matter how small, no matter seemingly how insignificant or ludicrous to us, has kingdom's importance and relevance. Oh, Lord, help us to demonstrate our love for you and obedience to your word. You have not come to abolish. You have come to fulfill, to complete. You have not called us to anarchy. You have called us to service. Oh, Lord, thank you for using us, using us in ways that we don't even know and understand. But you have touched our lives, and in doing so, we are walking, living testimonies to your grace and your mercy. Thank you for impacting the world through us. And may we give you honor and glory and praise and find our ultimate source of rejoicing is that our names are written in heaven. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I chose the hymns, I was going in a different direction.